Monsters of History. I'm your host, Christian Gonzalez, and today we are discussing a continuation of our previous episode of The Hookman and its possible true origins in the already very mysterious Texarkana Moonlight Murders. But of course, since this is sort of a part two, if you have not seen The Hookman, please go and check that episode out before you check out this one. Now, this story is already very sensational in the fact that its details are incredibly mysterious and its investigation team, its victims, and its suspects are very unusual and strange. But it could have caused even more sensation, even beyond that of the Hookman urban legend. Stay tuned, but first we need to hear from our sponsor. want to make the point that if you go to anchor.fm slash the monsters of history slash support you can begin supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month it's you know obviously optional and it would be greatly appreciated so tex arcana moonlight murders first of all what is or where is tex arcana if you're not familiar with United States geography, Texarkana is a town or a city that was split into two or is split into two by a state line, a state border, and you can hear which states are the states that split the town. It's Texas on the west and Arkansas in the east. So Tex Arcana, and this really is one town, but again, it's split down the line, right? So Tex Arcana is in northeastern Texas, northwestern Arkansas, and the Moonlight Murders took place from February 22nd to May 3rd, 1946. And they were committed by a person known as the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer, who had eight victims in total, five of which were murdered. Now, I want to make a point. When it comes to serial killings, this is a short amount of time. I mean, late February into early May, that really leaves you with two months and change and if you have seen episodes of true crime shows or have listened to this podcast in the past you would automatically know that serial killings can happen over a span of decades and the number of victims quite unfortunately could end up in the tens hundreds even and so when it comes to serial killers The Phantom Killer, whoever he was, didn't have that long of a criminal career. And we'll get to that brevity uh, later on in the episode. But who the victims were is 
well, important, okay, that's important in every case in a uh, serial killer investigation, essentially, they were almost always uh, teenagers or young adults on Lover's Lane, and the victims have an interesting pattern, so on February 22nd, there was an attack where one person survived and the other died. And on March 24th, at 24th, there was a double murder. April 14th, there was another double murder. And then on May 3rd, there was the fifth and final murder. And the victim was Virgil Starks, age 37, 37, and his wife, Katie, age 36. So, you know, not just teenagers, but also young adults. And I just want to point this out. It has nothing to do with the subject, but Virgil Starks sounds an awful lot like the Woody Allen character, Virgil Starkwell, in the movie Take the Money and Run, which is a parody of a crime documentary or a, cr- or a criminal biopic. And I almost wonder if he took the name from Virgil Starks as this this mystery, this murder mystery and serial killings have certainly gained notoriety and Woody Allen is definitely of the right time period for it. But anyway, the team, the investigators, very interesting. There was William or Hardy Bill Presley, William Bill Presley, who was the Bowie uh, County Sheriff, who was the first lawman of the scene on the first three attacks in Bowie count, uh, County is the Texas side of Texarkana. Then there's Jack Runnels, or Jackson Ely Runnels, the Texarkana, Texas Chief of Police, and he was among the first called to the scenes of the two double murders. Then there was W.E. Davis, who was the Miller County Sheriff, Miller County being in Arkansas, who headed the investigation of the Starks murder. There was Max Andrew Tackett, who was the Arkansas State Police Detective, who was the first on the scene of the Starks attack, and the arresting officer of the lead suspect, who again we'll get to in a moment. There was Toman Byron Johnson, a Miller County Chief Sheriff Deputy, who was one of the leading investigators on the case, and he became the quote-unquote go-to man for coordinating the case and kept a personal case file, which survived the official files, which, for whatever reason, went missing. And he was also the last lawman to survive. He passed away in 2008, and he, until his death, had been kind of the person who communicated with TV shows and other interested parties. And then finally, we have Manuel uh, Trezazas, the Lone Wolf uh, Gonzalez, not spelt the same way my last name is spelt, but G-O-N-Z-A-U-L-L-A-S. I would imagine in Spanish that's pronounced Gonzayas. Well, obviously of the same origin. But he was a Texas Ranger 
and he also became a public face of the investigation and he was known for holding uh, press conferences and he was kind of grabbing his 15 minutes of fame during this investigation and strangely enough uh, after the investigation was over after the case had been I guess thrown away or considered unsolvable he actually became uh, a consultant for the technical side of TV and movies so just an eclectic group and it's not very often that you see you know this interstate investigation and I think that's part of the reason why this investigation became so darn messy and so many things were actually thrown out and rather unfortunately when you do have these multiple parties investigating you know Texarkana Texas Texarkana Arkansas the two different counties and even uh, investigation at the state level they're all trying to compete to find the killer to arrest the culprit and to get the publicity and get the press on their side and oftentimes people butt heads rather than work together you know two heads are better than one but once groupthink takes over and more and more people are involved in groupthink sometimes the whole operation gets less and less organized and more and more chaotic and that also can be reflected through the community's reaction you know i already mentioned that texarkana is one town or one city that was kind of split into two by the state line you can look at it on a map that there are several streets that connect directly and the ones that don't are essentially the same street anyway they're just a few it's on a grid system and it's a few numbers off so at some point the first nine street numbers are the same but then you all of a sudden get this jaggedness in the streets but it's for all intents and purposes one community and there are places like that throughout the world and if you're a geography nerd or a geography buff you know how interesting it is to see cities and towns and communities that have been split by borders but Texarkana going back to kind of the geography and demographics of it wasn't quite a city wasn't quite a town you know it was one of these places that it's a big town and a small city it's one of those places that's big enough to have some sort of notoriety and maybe different neighborhoods and different reputations for those neighborhoods but small enough where it's one of those towns and this is a very American thing everybody knows everybody and so something that really uh, caused the investigation to go awry was the spread of rumors just the rampant spread of rumors and you know this is during a time where nothing much else is going on this is in um, 1946 the second world war had just ended not a whole lot is going on between the second world war and kind of the atom age they're sort of in this limbo period but at the same time you know there's quite the accusatory culture in the united states 
with the red scare and all, you know, the false accusation, well, sometimes it's truthful, but in some cases, the false accusation of your neighbor or your friend or your relative or that person on TV or the person who runs this store or that store being a communist. And of course, then and now in the United States, communism has a very bad reputation. But according to uh, Michael Newton's book, The Texarkana Moonlight Murders, the unsolved case of the 1946 Phantom Killer, the spreading of rumors was so uncontrollable that there actually needed to be a release by the press. And the Texarkana Gazette on March 27, 1946, they said, and I quote, do not spread rumors. Chances are that the person listening will repeat your information and enlarge upon it, eventually requiring a detailed investigation by officers, thereby perhaps pulling them off the true trail. And if you want to know more uh, information and even buy the book, Texarkana, Moonlight Murders, The Unsolved Case of the 1946 Phantom Killer, there will be a link down below in the show notes. Right, so clearly these rumors were really muddying up the investigation. You know, people were on edge and it was preventing the police from doing their job. And another way that the community was preventing the police from doing their job was through uh, vigilante justice. And according to Sheriff Presley, the same sheriff who was the Bowie or Bowie County Sheriff in, in Texas, on the Texas side of the community, he said, the people must not become so anxious to rid themselves of the killer that they brand innocent persons as the murderer. So, uh, the people of Texarkana, both Texas and Arkansas side, were terrified and they went to department stores and hardware stores in the area and guns and flashlights and other security devices were selling out in the area very quickly to the point where there was a supply chain uh, issue for that short amount of time. You know, just in the two months and change that this was going on, people were actually Uh, having trouble buying the supplies they actually needed. And just to make a point of how many uh, suspects there actually were, how much vigilante justice there was, and how many rumors were being spread so quickly and so uh, aggressively, there were 400 people arrested in this short time span. And the group of people who were suspected is really interesting, you know, and it really says something about the time as well. One suspect was just a simple unknown hitchhiker, you know, oh, who is that guy? Oh, I have no idea, but he must be the Texarkana Phantom Killer or Phantom Slayer. Another one is someone who sold musical instruments, specifically saxophones. Why? I have no idea. Another person was an ex-Air Force machine gunner, a 
taxi driver. Someone the police have simply called Sammy, quote unquote, who unfortunately uh, uh, failed a polygraph and was hypnotized. And, you know, there is definitely, you know, questionable methods with the polygraph and hypnotism. For those of you who do not know, and if you do not believe me when I say this, you can do some uh, research on your own. Polygraphs do not exactly work. They are not a science. The person who invented the polygraph has admitted it's not a proper method of determining the innocence or guilt of a person or party. Essentially, polygraphs only work if you believe they work. There are countless situations in which polygraph work, as you may know them, lie detector tests have been faked. And honestly, sometimes anytime I watch a true crime show and I hear that, oh, the suspect took a polygraph, I sometimes I cringe at that because honestly, I don't know how many people who are innocent have been locked up and how many people who are guilty have walked away. But just to make a point, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibalistic uh, serial killer slash pedophile passed a polygraph. He did not fail. Um, And, you know, there's probably going to be a future episode on him eventually. But one way or another, they don't always work unless if the person who's taking it believes it works. Um, And many police departments know this, but because so many people believe it exists or it it, uh, it works they don't really have an issue using it and I understand that uh, but he was also hypnotized and hypnotism is also like a polygraph it only works if you believe it works you know and there is a mystery behind hypnotism but for the most part you know it only works if you believe it works hypnotists who do it for entertainment purposes you know call up, and I've seen hypnotists on stage before, call up 10, 20, 30 people, and they kind of do a survey of the room and make sure they see who can and cannot get hypnotized, and it's the people who have been anticipating the show, they've been excited for it, and they can't wait to get hypnotized, they raise their hand, they're ready to volunteer, and those are the people who get hypnotized, and even sometimes... It doesn't work on those people either. We need to have a very open mind to get hypnotized. And uh, I guess apparently Sammy passed his hypnotism test and he was let go. Then there was Judy Tennyson. And this is very sad. He committed suicide. He committed suicide and uh, he left a note. And basically in that note, he admitted to... Uh, some of the murders, but there's no further uh, evidence suggesting that he's the actual person who did it, and um, that's very sad, you know, anytime someone commits suicide is a sad thing, and the the fact that he uh, lied about committing these murders or believed that he committed these murders is also very sad, clearly this was a disturbed 
individual and we should um, remember the, uh, this, this person and if you're a religious person, pray for his soul, you know. And then, and of course, many, many, many others, but I guess like 400 people were arrested, but there was, of course, the person who was eventually considered guilty, Yule Sweeney, that's Y-O-U-E-L-L Sweeney, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y, and essentially, because of accusations by his wife, who later refused to testify against him and his, and his peers, and his uh, request to plead no contest and even not, and, and guilty in this, and just circumstantial evidence, he's been considered by most people, most scholars who have studied this, to be the perpetrator, the person responsible for committing these crimes. And I'm not going to get so much into the detail of the uh, evidence per se, but I will get into the legacy that this case has created. and the sensationalism is probably the most interesting part of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. And, you know, of course, the actual crimes themselves are interesting, but this thing has lived on forever in the fact that, uh, officially, legally speaking, there is no official suspect, or, uh, excuse me, I should say, official guilty member or uh, individual or party, but of course the legacy has been discussed in the somewhat part one version of this episode, and that's the Hookman. And again, if you have not seen or listened to that episode, please do listen to it. It's It was a lot of fun doing, and uh, you can definitely check that out. Um, very interesting indeed um but beyond that there's also the kind of cult classic movie the town that dreaded sundown and besides the title rhyming it seems like a very interesting film i am ashamed to admit that i've never seen it i have heard of it uh, i just haven't seen it but i definitely will check it out uh now that i done all this research and wrote this episode and have recorded it and it it was directed by Charles B. Pierce who is a Texarkana local you may know him as the guy who created the Boggy Creek pseudo documentary about Bigfoot in Arkansas uh, the legend of Boggy Creek so he is somewhat famous amongst folklore and horror movie circles. And maybe you've seen The Town That Dreaded Sundown. It's a very popular movie and, you know, movies like these that sensationalize true events and give a reputation toward communities can go either one way or the other. Either the town hates the creation and they're embarrassed and they don't want anything to do with it and 
They hope that no one ever watches the sensationalized, fictionalized version of their, uh, you know, town with the skeleton in their closet. And other times they love it and they hope that everyone sees it. And I guess you could say, fortunately, Texarkana, for the most part, loves this movie. They play it every year as the finale movie in a film festival that they hold uh, every year. So with that all being said, uh, doing this sort of two-part episode was an incredible amount of fun. Part one being The Hookman, part two being this episode that you're listening to right now. And uh, if you want to know more information about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, there is some information in the show notes. First and foremost, there's the book I already mentioned by Michael Newton, The Texarkana Moonlight Murders, The Unsolved Case of the 1946 Phantom Killers, and there's also the book The Phantom Killer by James Presley, who, by my suspicion, I haven't been able to figure this out or not yet, is the son of Sheriff Presley, but I can't confirm that, so that's just a hunch of mine, considering that James Presley is a native of Texarkana, and the only other Presley I know is Elvis Presley, i.e. it's not a very common last name, there must be some sort of connection to the sheriff, right? And I will also leave a link to the movie, uh, the Blu-ray copy of the town that uh, dreaded sundown in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want to support the show monetarily you uh, by donating in a subscription form as for as little as 99 cents, you can go a month. You can go to anchor.fm slash the monsters of history slash support next week we are going to be talking about jaws or the real life jaws the shark attacks that happened in the great state my home state of new jersey thank you very much and i'm excited to share jaws with you next week take care goodbye